Welcome to the 246th episode of the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Tofel. And today we have, I'm going to say, kind of a schizophrenic show for us. <laughs> it's a little odd. First up, we're going to be talking about surveillance and cameras and kind of scary things. Then we're going to switch to a gift list. And then we'll follow up with a little bit of news. And our guest this week is Irene Petrick of Intel Research, and she is going to talk about the skills necessary to make a digital transformation successful and how companies are going to face challenges sharing data in the years ahead. It's a really good interview. We're also going to hear from this week's sponsor, Serent. Building a great connected product is tough. Although it may work well in your lab or field trial, once it's in the wild, wild west of real customer environments, it gets more complicated. To build a product that works well in the real world, you should check out Serent. Their solutions make it easier to get products connected and to keep them connected. So go to Serent.com to learn more about their solutions. That's C-I-R-R-E-N-T.com. Okay, Kevin. Let's get started with the U.S. is turning into a surveillance nation. This was kind of surprising, I thought. The a report came out this week from IHS Market talking about how much cameras have grown, how much camera installations have grown in the U.S. We're actually just second to China, which I don't know. I found that surprising. So they, they measured the installed base of cameras based on the population. And in 2018, so last year, China had 4.1 people for every camera and the U.S. had 4.6 people for every camera. And IHS actually calculated this out back in 2015, and those two figures were 6.8 people in China per camera and 6.9 in the USA per camera. So more cameras over the last three years, which shouldn't be too surprising. Are you surprised that we're, we have less people per camera in, than China? I'm surprised at how closely we're ranked with mm. China. Because when I, th I mean, we talk about this on the show all the time, China has turned their mm -hmm. cameras into a surveillance state. They're using facial recognition on their Uyghur population to corral mm -hmm. them and control them. They're using their yeah. social scores to like make sure their normal citizens right. play within bounds. And here we are. I don't think of the U.S. as being that way, but holy cow, we could become that way. Two things come to mind. One, China is a very big geographical entity. So I'm sure there's plenty of people that are far away from the cities that count towards the population and they certainly don't have cameras. Um, so that may be part of this, but more surprising to me only because when I've been in London, there are cameras everywhere. And it, in the UK and I assume Ireland here, it's 6.5 people per camera. So we have like far more cameras per people here in the US when I would have thought the UK had more. Yeah, I, I also thought that was a little surprising. Mm -hmm. So the numbers are the number one place for cameras per people, China, followed by the USA, then Taiwan, then the UK and Ireland, and then Singapore. The interesting forecast here to me, by 2021, IHS estimates China's camera install base will be 567 million cameras. Wow. 
Yeah, it's going to be 4.5 times larger than in the United States, yeah. which is crazy. Yes, it is. Well, they do have a much larger population of true, people. True, true. Yeah. So why do we bring this up? Because <laughs> I don't think people realize that we have the infrastructure today to be kind of a scary surveillance nation. But recent reporting on Ring, and we've talked about this quite a bit, is showing how this could be possible. So Gizmodo did a really eye-opening report about the Neighbors app, which is the app that Ring offers its users that lets them share camera images and data. So you can actually, I, as a Ring doorbell owner, can use the Neighbors app to upload my video footage to this app. And let's talk about what Gizmodo found out. Yeah, what's interesting here is, first of all, that they spent more than a month actually looking at data that I don't know how they got, and they're not sharing how they got it, but they said it is publicly accessible. And I commend them for not telling us because then everybody would be starting to look at this data, right? But the fact that they could actually get this is very scary, to be quite yeah, honest. So they, they were able to get the geographic location, sometimes within a few inches of people's doorsteps or front door, basically the doorbell. They were actually able to document on a map all the ring cameras collecting data, they located about 20,000 ring cameras and stopped there. But they also cite in the report and offer data from a MIT Media Lab student who is doing a PhD. He's a PhD student doing research on this. And he has a map showing the location of 440,000 ring cameras, which yeah. is crazy. The other thing is having this geographic, having the GPS that long location of these cameras allows you to understand exactly where something is that you're seeing. And that was kind of concerning because they talked about some of these cameras face places like abortion clinics or schools. And you can actually use, you can see what's interesting on the video, and then you could actually find out physically where to go to get to that place, which is scary. Or you could see people who are specifically coming and going to certain places. You mentioned um, the abortion clinic, a legal office that handles immigration refugee cases they found. There's a lot of things you can put together with this data if you know where to look for it. And again, they didn't share that, so I don't know where to look for it. But the fact that it's available to Ring and therefore to Amazon I think unbeknownst to most people, I don't think most people when they join the Neighbors app think it goes this far. That, I shook my head when I read this story. And Ring does say, and here's their quote to Gizmodo, only content that a Neighbors user chooses to share on the Neighbors app is publicly accessible through the Neighbors app or by your local law enforcement. However, I don't think people are aware of exactly what they're sharing. Exactly. It's going to take this kind of come to Jesus moment. Remember when uh, John McAfee, the, a reporter, took a picture of him and the metadata in the photo pinpointed his location? Mm -hmm. and suddenly everyone was like, holy cow, my photos share my location. I feel mm -hmm. like we need to have that moment for our video, for our Ring doorbells. Right, because if I'm a typical consumer and I have Ring and I do the Neighbors app, on the surface, I think it's a good idea. And why wouldn't I? It will help the police in case of an issue and they need footage, you know, it's a good thing. I get that. But I don't think people are thinking when we all do this together and the fact, because these guys, the, the consumers aren't going to know this, that this data can be pieced together. 
through some loophole that's publicly available that Gizmodo found, well, that's a totally different story. Yeah, and quite scary. So tying those two stories together, I'm going to say it. I mean, this is why we're freaking out about this and covering mm -hmm. it. I shouldn't say we're freaking out. I don't think we're freaking out in a bad way. I think we're just No, no, we're we're raising awareness to a potential issue, I think is the the best way to put it. And just so everybody's clear, Gizmodo did let the Ring and Amazon folks know about this, and then they later checked a few days after they reported to Amazon, and they could still access the data however they were accessing it. So, it may be a closed loophole now, but when they wrote this story, it was still an open issue. Open book. Mm -hmm. Okay, maybe there's hope in the form of federal regulation. Maybe there's not. But <laughs> a story from NextGov points out that Senator Chris Coons, who is a Democrat from Delaware, and Mike Lee, a Republican from Utah, have sponsored a Facial Recognition Technology Warrant Act. And the goal is to prevent the abuse of facial recognition technology that people use that is currently being used in China, for example. And to be clear, with what we're talking about with Ring, they are not yet using facial recognition in right. any of this. But you can imagine if you had that data and you could pull the data from the Neighbors app and run your model looking for a particular person against that, how creepy that could be. But what they want to do is have a 72-hour limit on being able to track someone using facial recognition across a variety of cameras. It's kind of, they admit that it's arbitrary, but they want to try to strike this balance between law enforcement who's like, hey, this could really help us. And the rest of us who are like, it is creepy as all get out if law enforcement can basically take an image of our face and track us for any length of time. I understand that the 72-hour limit is arbitrary. I don't know. I'm kind of on the fence on this, which may sound surprising. In certain instances, if there is a criminal, terrorist, something, you know, somebody who's bad and should be caught, and there's a manhunt going on. In that case, I wouldn't have a problem if they went beyond that 72-hour limit, right? To be looking at closed-circuit TVs and whatever facial recognition databases. But that's probably the only time I would say go beyond that limit. But I don't know how that how the law is going to codify that. You would probably go back in and get a new warrant. So you have a warrant that gives you 72 hours, and then you'd have to go back in and, again, restate your need for this. Gotcha. Well, so that's a bit of a paperwork hassle, but it, it, it would work. Yeah. I mean, if it's worth it, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, part of the, if you make it harder for law enforcement to get access to data to prove their case, for example, they're going to try to find easier ways that are maybe not quite so authoritarian or surveillance driven. Right. But if it's like, you know, a missing kid and you've got to find them, then exactly. it's totally worth doing that paperwork. Yep. But maybe not for petty theft. Which, you know, as someone who's been a victim of petty theft, that's, at the moment, I'd be disappointed. But I'm also like, well, civil liberties are important. Yes. Okay. That was a pretty hot and heavy topic there. That, that was oh. pretty, yeah, that was really, you know, pessimistic. How about something optimistic? Something happy? Let's talk about the holidays. Uh. I know. You're running and screaming. You're like, ah! If you're one of those <laughs> people who's like, I'm running and screaming because I don't have presents for people. Hey, we have got you covered. This year, I wasn't going to do a gift list because I just felt like so many stories this year were all about like, don't buy a smart mm. speaker for your friends. It's it's a rude, intrusive thing. And there were so many privacy questions that really felt like, do I want to encourage this? You know, I don't want people giving people gifts that they might be like, ah, scary. Here's a free account with Amazon's recognition facial database. Exactly. <laughs> so... 
But a bunch of people asked me for ideas, and I was like, well, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do things that a lot of these are kind of crazy. To me, a gift is something you buy someone that's awesome, it's extravagant, and it's also something they probably wouldn't buy themselves because it's, you know, again, expensive or extravagant. So here's our list. (laughs) First up on it, and don't stress, you don't have to write all this down because in this week's newsletter, I will have the full gift list with links and other information. So you can listen to this now. If something sparks your interest, go and grab it. But if you're like, I'm in the car, I can't write any of this down, know that it will be in your inbox on Friday. I don't usually double up, but this felt helpful. So kicking it off is a present that is not connected, but I love it. It's so useful. It is the Casper Glow. This is expensive, though. This is $129. It's a bedside table lamp, and it's just beautifully designed. You can turn it to increase the light. You can flip it over to turn it off. When you you have the option of taking it around in the middle of the night and it just kind of glows very softly so it's not super bright, it is bright enough to read by. And it's got a six-hour battery life. So I bought it because I live in a place where, reportedly, the power will go out at some point in time during the winter and I'll want to have an extra source of light. So that's my excuse for buying this. And you can also use it to wake you up in the morning with light. So a lot of fun options and it's not connected. It's just using tech to be useful. Yay. Mm-hmm. So speaking of the lights, here's a, a bit of extravagance. Um, Nanoleaf, they have the newer canvas lights, which are the square touch sensitive panels. Uh, I had purchased the original Nanoleafs for my son, Tyler, the triangular ones. He loves them. And I got him the Aurora microphone. So when he plays music, the lights can respond to the music and all that. And, uh, the newer ones, again, touch sensitive. The starter kit's $180. You get nine square panels. You can get expansion packs. I think they sell those with four panels each. But again, not what I would call practical. But if my son is any indication, he loves them. They just, you can, you can set them in any configuration that you want. They can just provide some ambiance. And I don't really see any privacy concerns there. So, you know. I love them. And they connect into Amazon. Echoes or Google devices, so you can control them that way. For the security-minded in your life, I'm going to recommend the Wise Sense. This is also a good gift for someone going to college or just someone who, again, it's it's a very simple gift. But the Wise Sense are a package of sensors. It's a three-pack of sensors. You're also going to need the Wise Camera. The cheapest one of those is $19.99. So for roughly forty bucks, you get a security system. A bare bones security system, but sure. And you're going to get a motion sensor. You're going to get two open closed sensors. And then you're going to get a little bridge that plugs into the back of the camera that allows the sensors to talk to the camera. Again, this is both fun security for someone, maybe a renter, maybe someone who has a home. And it's also a really good intro into playing with IoT, I think, because I don't know, I love having sensors. I think it's so much fun to be like, ooh. If this door opens, what can I make happen? Those little open-close sensors are actually really useful. You know, for I use one for a closet door to turn a light on, for example, so we don't have to walk into a dark closet and fumble for the light switch. So, And Wise has lights, so you could tie those in. Exactly. All right. Other fun things in the lower price range is the AirThings Wave Mini Indoor Air Quality Monitor. I found it on sale for $56 on Amazon. 
This is a product that measures humidity, temperature, and VOCs in the air. Most other air quality monitors are more expensive. They usually also measure CO2. So this one does not measure CO2. And for those of you who are wondering, too much carbon dioxide in the air is supposed to make you sleepy and not as productive. So if someone's worried about their air quality, just at a basic level, this is a really good option that's relatively inexpensive. If they're a little bit more advanced or maybe they have their own air filter already, I would actually give them the Aware Glow C for $89. It's a different company, but that device actually gives you the ability to control an air filter, which is awesome because, you know, then you basically have taken your old dumb air filter and turned it into a smart one. So when it detects like VOCs that are high in the air, it'll turn that on and it's, it's great. You could also pair it with a dehumidifier or a fan. So super fun. For someone who wants to actually improve their privacy, the Firewall has to be on this list. And there are two models ranging from 99 to 199. They both do the same thing, but the difference has to do with what kind of speeds you want on your network. Because what the Firewall does is it sits on your network connected to your router and it measures and tracks all of your internet traffic. But that data doesn't go to your ISP. That data goes to you. You can see in the Firewalla app what devices are sending data to what IP addresses, to what servers, and to what countries those servers are in. You can limit the amount of time on your home network for, say, social media, for the kids and so on. So there's parental controls. And I think best of all, it can act as a local virtual private network. So that way you can hide all of your data from your ISP, or when you're away from home, you can connect to that VPN to any web service, and the web service thinks you're at home, which is great when you're traveling across the country, and maybe you want to watch your local news on, say, YouTube TV. You can do it through the firewall of VPN, so there's no subscription fee for that. It's basically a local VPN server with all that. So I love this device when I reviewed it earlier in the year. Yeah, it is a good gift for everyone. Okay, here's one that this is not a good gift for many people, I think. <laughs> but if you have someone who might use this, it's a unique gift and it is extravagant. This is the Ember Mug. I say two, but they, they do a superscript. So we'll call it the Ember Mug Squared. This is a $99.95 coffee mug. It's almost $100 for a coffee mug. It holds 10 ounces or a slightly more expensive one holds 14 ounces. And what you do is it is powered up enough to keep your coffee at a certain or tea or whatever warm beverage you have at a certain temperature. And you can select between, I think it's 120 degrees to 145 degrees. And I really, you have to hand wash it. I have a hard time with this, except my mom every day has to reheat her coffee. <laughs> and I'm thinking if you have a partner or a parent or someone in your life who's constantly losing their cup of coffee or just sitting at their desk for hours without drinking it, this is actually a really good gift for them. Is it worth the pain factor of having to hand wash it and set up an app? Only you can make that guess <laughs> and, you know, make that guess and decide. But I'm getting it for my mom, taking the risk. So I'm putting it on the list because it does fit the extravagant and it is useful. I dump a half a cup of cold coffee out probably twice a day when I'm sitting here writing, so I get it. Do you think, I mean, would you want one of these? What if I gave you one, Kevin? As a gift, I would take it. I wouldn't personally 
buy myself this yeah, for a hundred dollars. Like, so no that, one you're right. Buy themselves a so, hundred dollar coffee mug. Right, right. But you might enjoy it if I gave it to you. Your mom's gonna love this. We'll see. All right. Other gifts. This is probably more my mom's style because it's not connected to the internet at all. Is the Illuminabi. I wrote about this recently. This is a smart doorknob that is not connected to the internet at all or Bluetooth or anything. What makes it smart is a sensor in the doorknob itself. When that's triggered, it's a, when you get closer to it, the doorknob throws light from behind the doorknob onto the door itself. And it's just a cute little light pattern. And the doorknob is $50. And I love this thing. I think it's so pretty. And Kevin thinks it's so silly. But no, I don't think it's silly. And, and before the show, we even had my wife take a look at it just to see if that was considered extravagant. And she agreed with me. It's extravagant. It belongs on the list. But you have one. You love it. And that's all that counts. Yeah, I, I do. I'll be interested. It's a white doorknob. It's very substantial. It's made by Pin and Tumblr, which is the company. It's like an innovation lab for Allegion, which makes the Schlage locks. So it's not made by the same Schlage standards, but it feels like a substantial quality doorknob. And it's for indoors, I should tell everyone. Okay. Yes. And there's a gift I gave Kevin. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Let me explain what the gift is. And then I can actually share a little bit of a review thought since I have used it now for the better part of a week since it came early. Philips Hue, which I have stayed away from because I didn't want extra bridges and whatnot. They make something new called the Philips Hue Sync Box. It's $229. And it's literally just a small, smart box with four HDMI inputs and one HDMI output. So you connect this to your TV or a computer monitor, etc. What's neat about it is that it syncs the audio and video content coming through the box to your TV to any Hue lights you may have. And what I'm using it for is both for movies and for Google Stadia gaming on my HDTV. So when I'm watching a movie and there are explosions or some something that, you know, makes the screen light up, the lights that you have to buy, you have to have Philips Hue bulbs, of course, lights behind the TV kind of interact and simulate exactly what's going on on the TV on your wall. So now like I have a whole wall of light when something happens on the TV and it's just synchronized perfectly. It's $229. Philips Hue makes a similar product for PC content for $129 called the Hue Play. That uses a Philips Hue app on the PC or Mac to to do the synchronization. It works the same way, but I don't use a PC for that kind of stuff. So that's why the sync box works better for me. So I would get the play though, if I were like a millennial or a Gen Zer who only watches television on my laptop or I only do laptop style gaming. That is correct because that only works with the content on the screen of the computer that the app is running. So that is correct. If you want HDMI content from, say, uh, an Apple TV or a Fire TV or whatever it is you're using, Roku, this would be the way to go. Got it. And can I use it? So I know I need to have a Hue Hub for this to work. And then you do. They make those lights that throw the color on the wall. Could I also use my existing Hue lights and bring that into this? Or 
You can use any Philips Hue lights that, you know, the color tune lights uh, for this. In fact, if you want those explosions and whatnot to be lighting up the entire room around you, you could do that. What I did when you had so kindly gifted this to me, I went and actually found a Hue Play starter kit and it had the two Hue light bars, which are the elongated, I don't know, maybe eight inches, 10 inches long LED bulbs. And it came with a Hue Bridge, and I got that for one twenty nine, which I thought was a steal. Yeah, that's great because I would yeah. hate to send you a present that, I, and I should say this costs two hundred and twenty nine dollars. Yes, it does. But Thank you very much for that, by the way. You're welcome. Well, I'm I'm clearly getting a review and an item on the gift list out of it, so I feel like I win. We all win, you, Kevin. We all win. Yes. So you could use it with other Philips Hue bulbs, but you do need the bridge. And people who know Philips Hue and have used the bridge know that the setup is pretty seamless. I mean, it took me all of three minutes to get the Hue bridge set up. And then it was just a matter of plugging in the light bars behind the TV and then in the Hue app, adding the light bars. One thing, though, the Hue Sync app is a separate app. That's strange. Yeah, I think so, too. But I think it's because it has some specific features, like you have to set up an entertainment zone. And in doing so you drag icons for your Hue lights in your entertainment room. So I had to drag the icons for the two light bars behind the TV so it knew, okay, they're light left and right behind the TV. And so I sort of get that, but I'd like to see it all in one app in the future, if possible. The other thing is in the Hue Sync app, that's where you control the syncing stuff. So you tell it, I'm, I'm watching TV or I'm listening to music because it does sync with music over HDMI as well, or I'm playing a game. To be honest, I now leave it on the game mode because it actually works better there even when I'm watching movies. For some reason. Yeah. For some reason, it just does it. That's just me. Maybe your mileage will vary. But that app lets you configure that. You also have four intensity levels of how much color and brightness you want to, to be synchronized with the content. Every movie I watch now and every game I play in Stadia, I've got those lights on. Cool. Okay. And just to throw in a couple items, normally all of these other items we have actually played with and tested. So when I'm telling you to buy these, I'm telling you because I've I've used them. So keep that in mind. But for a few stocking stuffers, just to round this out a little bit, I want to throw up, we usually have it on our list every year, but a tile pack, some kind of tile gift pack. So they have the new tile stickers. These are devices that you put on your stuff and allow you to find it using an app. And I'm putting it on there because, by golly, they're just handy. You really can't go wrong shoving that into someone's stocking. The other item I would throw out there, because we get so many requests for it, is a device called the Smart Dry. This is a sensor and hub that you use. You throw this in your dryer. It sticks to the, oh, the Drum. Thank you. That was like the metal thing inside. (laughs) And it tells you when your clothes are dry. That's it. And people ask for this all the time. It's $50 on Amazon. If this is a problem you have, by gosh, go get it. And then finally, for the super nerds who are listening to this podcast, because I know you're out there, I'm going to tell you, and this is a device that is coming, but I don't have in my hot little hands yet, is the Helium Hotspot. Hmm. And Helium is a company that is trying to build a peer-to-peer network for the Internet of Things. And 
They have coverage in more than 425 cities in 45 of the 50 states. It's kind of neat. They use blockchain to incentivize people. They use a cryptocurrency to incentivize people to use their technology. But, you know, if you want to be part of building a <laughs> a peer-to-peer IoT network, which I know some of you probably do, you can go to helium.com and purchase a hotspot for, okay, y'all, take a breath. It's $495. Yeah, so again, this is something if you can expense it, but it's a very interesting device. I can't wait to test mine and see how much, see what I can do with it, basically. And also, I'll be part of a network that helps connect devices to the Internet mm-hmm. of Things. Yay! All right. That is our gift list. Pretty much covering everybody. Well, maybe not your, your three-year-old cousin. They probably don't need any of this stuff. But they would enjoy the lights. They would enjoy the Illuminati. And possibly the Illuminati. Okay. (laughs) So just a few more news bits, and then we'll move on to our guest. But Ring, they have apparently filed with the FCC to create a light bulb, a floodlight specifically. This fits with the outdoor security model. I don't know really what else we want to say about this. Anything? No, I mean, at some point they need to expand their product line. So this kind of makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. And speaking of companies that Amazon has bought, Blink. The tiny Wi-Fi powered cameras that they purchased many, many years ago. Tenable found a security flaw in the Blink cameras. They have been patched. So if you get an update and you have Blink cameras, please install that because you don't want people accessing your security camera. Nope, nope, nope. Nope. And cool feature in Google Assistant, Kevin. Well, it's in Google Assistant, but it's only for the Lenovo Smart Clock, that cute little 40 or $50 Smart display. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it, this reminds me of Pandora so much. So Google has added something called Impromptu. It's a feature called Impromptu. And we should see it on other smart displays, but for now it's on the one. It basically creates or chooses music tones for your alarm based on, say, time of day or weather. So it, it's kind of tying in machine learning, AI, and local data. And I think it's kind of neat. I'm curious to see it. I, I don't have one of these smart clocks. If it comes to the smart displays, I'd like to try it out. But perfect example that Google has shared, rise and wake to a concert pianist, a new piano ringtone each day, composed and curated for you by Google AI. So look for impromptu if you have a Lenovo smart clock. And hopefully, again, it will filter out to other devices as well. Yeah, I'm not so excited. I wish it would pick more appropriate songs as opposed to generate weird AI-generated music, which sounds horrifying so far. Yes. But, you know, yay, the future is coming. La-la. Yay. Okay. Now, enough of the future. Let's talk about the past. Specifically, things we have learned when our smart home has gone awry over the holidays or simply (laughs) just gone awry. This week on the IoT Podcast Hotline, we're answering a question from one of our listeners about mistakes our smart homes have made, which I thought was kind of a fun topic, and she specifically asked about the holidays, so it feels very timely. Mm-hmm. The IoT Podcast Hotline is sponsored by Afero. With the fifth largest IoT patent portfolio in the world, Afero provides a proven IoT platform that doesn't risk your brand. Afero customers have experienced as much as an 80% reduction in time to market and 10x higher activation rates. 
You can learn more at afaro.io. And this caller, just like all of our callers to the IoT Podcast Hotline, are entered to win a device. This month's winner will get something close to one of our gift list items. This month's winner will win Hue light bulbs. Of course, once you are declared the winner, we'll talk about what your system looks like so we can set you up appropriately. But it's a good gift. So give us a call at 512-623-7424 to leave us a message. Plus, maybe we'll answer it. Yay! Okay, so now let's hear from this week's caller. Hi, Kevin and Stacy. Just a quick question for you this week. I was curious to know if you guys have any funny holiday stories revolving around your smart home and people coming to visit or that kind of thing. Okay, I actually have a holiday-related issue. I have two. One involves, it was probably three years ago that I set up a series of smart things around Christmas morning. And I had set up a couple of timers and things for my lights to come on at certain times. And I have banister lights. I have a tree light. I had all kinds of doodads in my house. (laughs) And I have a small child or a smallish child at the time who would wake up at 530 in the morning and expect to open the Christmas presents. So I decided, well, would it be neat is when she's going downstairs, everything is soft Christmas music is playing, the lights turn on, it'll be wonderful. So I set that to go at 5.30 because that was the time that we told her she could wake us up because I know she was in her room at 4 o'clock just sitting. Just waiting. Just waiting. So what I thought would happen at 5.30, because I guess I set it up under the wrong time zone, it went off on Eastern time, which was 4.30. So at 4.30, we were awakened to basically Christmas. It was like a Christmas bomb (laughs) dropping on us. And that was my bad. And- It did not go well. I'm sure she was happy, though. It was an hour earlier than she thought. We made her go back to bed. How awful are we? Oh, wow. We are the grinchiest people. You sure are. Okay. I'm not proud of that. Thinking back, I'm like, God, Stacy, you're evil. Ouch. Well, save your other story, because I have two quickies as well. Unfortunately, neither are the holidays. Um, One is recent, though, and it's hysterical, I think. I mentioned on the last show that my Wink Hub has not been working well, and I was going to switch to something else, and I haven't done that yet. Just the other night, I got a text message from my wife as I'm here in my office, and she said, Google isn't turning the lights on. How do I turn these lights on? I knew what the problem was, obviously. I walked all the way downstairs. I walked over to the lights. I said, not working, huh? She said, no. I asked Google three times, turn the lights on here down in the family room. I'm like, yeah. She says, so how do I turn them on? I walked over to the lamp, and I turned the knob to turn the switch. I'm like, there you go. She busted out laughing. She goes, I haven't touched a switch in like five years. It was so funny because she hasn't. I mean, everything's just worked, you know? So I have a Wink-related sad story for this year's holiday, which Uh is the prior, I'm going to say since, so 2015 was the year that Amazon brought their smart home stuff in. So two years prior to that, I had Wemo and other in Wink gear setting up all of my Christmas lights. And then I had my Christmas lights plus Madam A. So you could say, Madam A, turn on Christmas. So that was 2015, 16, 17, 18. And here we are in 2019. And since my Wink Hub doesn't really work anymore, I didn't have anything I could plug into it and set up all the timers. And it was so sad for my husband because he's like, let's set these all up on timers. And I'm like, yeah, (laughs) let's go dig out all of our old timers. And he's like, what? 
I have to program <laughs> this? That's your job. And so yeah. that was kind of a bummer. I remember the old timers where you flip the little switches every 30 minutes. We and- have two of those. Oh my goodness. Yeah, and we have we have two others that, you know, charge in the light and are little digital ones, but mm-hmm. yeah. 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 Old school. So my other story is not holiday, and again, refers back to my wife, unfortunately for her. She's married to a geek. I was at one of our old gig-ohm conferences, and I was on stage because I was the MC of some of those events, and I had said something about the smart home. So this was very early on. This is at least six, seven years ago. And I don't recall what thermostat I had just installed, but I'm on stage saying, yes, I mean, the smart home is amazing. Look, I can change the temperature of my home right now. And I was in California. That's, that's where we had the events. My home is in Pennsylvania. And I turned the heat up to 80 degrees. And, you know, everybody's like, ooh, ah. And I went on with the event and so on. And after the event, we were having dinner as a team. And I got this message from my wife. We're roasting in here. How do I turn the heat off? I forgot to actually turn it off. And I didn't tell her how to use the thermostat at the time. And it wasn't very intuitive. I felt so bad. Oh, my goodness. But... Yeah, I roasted my family one night. Wow. Well, that's... Yeah. And we're still married. Yeah. (laughs) She's a tolerant woman, Barb. Okay. (laughs) Well, there's our fun IoT goofs, I guess. And (laughs) hopefully you enjoyed those, the gift list, and... Don't do those. (laughs) Don't do those. You're going to do them. It's just the way this works. But maybe you have your own fun stories. You can also share those on the hotline. Maybe we'll do a show if we get enough. Let us now conclude this part of the show and move on to our guest, Irene Petrick of Intel Research. We're going to be talking about the skill sets needed for digital transformation and smart manufacturing. We're also going to be talking about how companies should approach data sharing, which is going to be a bigger deal in the coming years. First, if you like the show and want a written copy of the gift list, please sign up for my newsletter at www com goes out every Friday and you'll get stories that you don't get on the podcast normally. This week, you'll also get the gift list. And now let's go to our guest. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham. And today's guest is Irene Petrick, who is a Senior Director of Industrial Innovation at Intel. Hello, Irene. How are you? I'm well, Stacy. Thanks for having me. Oh, I am super excited. We've spoken before about Intel's research project on this, and I came away so much smarter. So I'm hoping everyone who's listening is prepared to become smarter. So let's talk about your research. You've been doing this for two years now? Yes. My colleague Faith McCrary and I started this research to better understand factories and what was happening within those factory walls. And we've continued over the last uh, two years to expand that to the technologists in factories and the ecosystem companies that support them. Awesome. And the first results came out, I believe, in spring of 2018. I remember reading them and going, huh, this is pretty good stuff. Do you want to kind of give an overview of what this was about? Sure. Let me give you a thumbnail. What we found really, we asked people about their pain points. And what we found is that people were really frustrated that they didn't have the information they needed. Even within their own companies, they had trouble getting access to information across the organizational silos. They found that by introducing smart technologies into their factories, that the normal relationships they build up, their work groups, their functional groups, 
really didn't suffice. And so they were having to reach beyond the organizational boundaries that they typically use to stand these projects up and maintain them. And then we found that there was a, a strong desire for change but that workers from the factory floor to the C-suite actually believed that the roles and responsibilities of today were going to change into the future. And there were a couple specific, I'll talk about three in specific. One was that the, the typical doers in a factory, the, the supervisors, the risk organizers, the manual workers, the, the expectation is that those kinds of roles are going to be merged into a single kind of a role. And that role is really what we call the pit boss. That's somebody who's going to be watching printouts, readouts of data, and making sure that the factory is running okay. The other thing that I'll call out is that IT workers and experts and OT, operating technologists, right now they're two different groups usually. The expectation is that they're going to have to merge into what we call the DevOps doer. So it's, it's really a double deep kind of expertise. So it has digital skills and the, the operational skills uh, blended eventually into one person. And then the third thing I would talk about from a persona perspective is when we looked at the motivations and what motivates people in their jobs, it goes from being very reactive today, regardless of the role, to being very proactive with data at the center of how that proactivity actually happens. So those were the major findings from the beginning study. Excellent. Okay. That was really good. And I am with you on this idea of IT and OT convergence, not just in the sense that they've all got to work together and be friends, but eventually you're going to have to have some level of IT and OT skills for that class of job inside a factory or maybe even inside building management. Now, let's fast forward a little bit to your latest research. After doing the April research, you guys decided to look at what? One of the findings from the earlier research and and our experience in actually doing proof of concept and pilot projects with companies is that the complexity of the technologies involved in, in a smart solution is far more involved than in past kinds of upgrades or new lines uh, that were installed. And so we we decided to take a look at the technologists in a factory and the technologists in the ecosystem vendors and suppliers that actually support them. So we sort of made the assumption, the leap of faith, that a single manufacturing company would be unlikely to possess all of the skills necessary to stand up multiple smart projects. And we also made a leap of faith saying that we questioned whether any single vendor could stand up a full end-to-end solution for that manufacturer. And so we decided to look at the technologists in the ecosystem companies that support all of this. Okay. And what did you find when you looked at that ecosystem? Well, I think some of the most interesting findings, once again, we expected to hear technology challenges. What we heard were people challenges, what we heard were culture challenges, what we heard were data challenges, and then we got to interoperability and security. So top of mind, even among the technologists, standing up these smart projects is really a workforce issue. Oh my goodness. Was there anything that wasn't a challenge? What was easy? Um, not much, not okay. much, because uh, even when I can stand a project up and have a success, the challenge is I can't scale it very easily. So there are still some real hurdles around going from pilot success to full-scale production and implementation. 
All right. And I say this all the time because I'm like, it's all about the people because digital transformation is a process kind of focus. So let's talk about how people are trying to make that process and develop their workforce so these digital transformations can succeed. Did you figure this out? Well, first of all, all of the opinions I'm expressing are the, are the opinions of the respondents. We had over 400 participants in this study. It's, it's not necessarily my personal opinion or the Intel opinion. It really is informed by the data. We happen to agree with a lot of it, but it really is the result of these 400 voices. So the top 36% of the people that responded to us and interacted with us told us that it was a technical skills gap that was going to be the biggest hurdle to successfully deploying projects and getting a return on investment. And we thought that was quite stunning because keep in mind, these were from the technologist's perspective. That was one issue, the, and, and then data sensitivity was number two, and that was a problem, and it's been growing in importance. So, so when I went to conferences a couple of years ago, this really wasn't mentioned all that much, but there's real uncertainty about how do I share data with third-party providers, and what do I write into my contracts, my vendor contracts to support that. So when you ask what kinds of things are accelerating smart projects or the success of smart projects. Certainly workforce training is one and our respondents gave us some very specific ideas about what they thought the skill sets needed to be in the future. And then the second one is having some data governance policies that support third-party sharing and that anticipate the need for third-party sharing prior to the installations. Okay, those are like my favorite two things because I'm looking forward for the data sensitivity thing. So we'll talk about that in a minute. Okay. Right now, I'm talking to people about technical skills gaps because this is like where the rubber meets the road. What are the gaps? What are the skills that people need? And I'm going to ask you to, if it's reasonable that you can expect one person to have all of these, or if maybe we're looking at how we rearrange who's on teams. So you, you hit on a good thing. Today, when we stand up teams, we don't focus enough on cross-functional expertise. We don't focus enough on both the technical skills for that specific project, as well as the infrastructure support skills. So things like comms and storage and IT policies and things all have to be baked into successful projects when you're planning them. And so when you're standing up a team, getting beyond the typical, what we call them the usual suspects, is really critical. And I'm going to throw in security in there because I always feel like when you're designing these things, you probably should have your security person there. You know, we've, we've talked a lot about that at Intel. We think a lot about that, obviously. But when we looked in, at the top challenges people mentioned, security was number four. So while people, I think, understand it, it's an issue, I don't know that the technologists themselves are really thinking about the vulnerabilities that attaching, uh, connecting machines to networks are really going to introduce. And I think it's twofold there, Stacy. One is just by introducing equipment into a network, I've increased the attack surface for a, a potential hacker, for example. But the other thing that happens is some of the interdependencies. So one thing in and of itself might not be a critical red flag. But when you put several of these together, what you end up with is what we call a corner case, which is any one thing in and of itself you could take care of when they all converge, it becomes a critical issue. And I don't think technologists have a deep enough appreciation for that complexity. Oh, so does that mean there shouldn't be a security person on the team or are you thinking more oh, like no, that's I why th they think it's number four? I think that's why they think it's number four. 
Okay. I've talked to people and even CISOs will point out that you actually, they all love to use this story about when you're in a group of people and there's a bear, you only have to be the second <laughs> lowest person. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that too. <laughs> so, so I'm like, oh, you know, when you're, because yes, you're never going to be able to spend or take all the risk out of this. So I think there's another thing, though, that, that's sort of interesting when you asked about what can people do, what can companies do? We've been sort of thinking about the security one and, and trying to make it more digestible in, in terms of actionable things I can do. One of them is to really, if we combine the OT and IT professionals in the teams, to really assess these vulnerabilities on an equal footing. I think we would improve the discussions. One place that that security becomes an issue potentially is when vendors upgrade their portion of the solution or piece of equipment. I don't think a lot of the operating technologists really understand what those new upgrades might mean in terms of new vulnerabilities. So I think that has to be elevated to a, a higher level discussion. Got it. Okay. So that did get us a bit of a digression away from the technical skill set. So I'm going to meander us back there. All right. So we're establishing that you probably need teams of people, cross-functional teams of people to do this, and you need your IT people on your team for your digital transformation. If I'm looking at this and I'm like, gosh, everything's going to change. People I'm bringing into the organization are going to do one thing today, but we're probably going to have them do something slightly different tomorrow. What should I be looking for? Interestingly, Stacey, we ask that question directly and we ask people, what is it that you think are the critical skills today? And what do you think the critical skills are going to be in the future? When I give you the list, I'll give you the top five in each of those categories. We didn't give them a pre-populated list that they could check all that apply. So this is really in their words from their experiences. So today, Not surprisingly, some belief about I should understand a little bit about programming. Number two is I should have uh, possess a deep manufacturing knowledge. Number three was great communication skills. Number four was innovation skills like brainstorming and design thinking. And number five was traditional IT skills. And then we have, you know, another 10 on the list that I, I won't read the whole list to you. But when we ask for the future, here's where it gets really interesting. The top five are all digitally oriented. So number one was a deep understanding of programming and software engineering. Number two was digital dexterity and the ability to leverage existing technologies and emerging technologies for practical business outcomes. Number three was data science. Number four was connectivity understanding. Number five was cybersecurity. And manufacturing skills don't show up on this critical future skills until number six. Wow. That surprised us. That surprises me. And it also feels kind of short-sighted because I would think the hallmark of good technology is it actually makes it so you don't have to have deep programming skills, for example. You know, I think ultimately, Stacey, that's correct. I think once we get AI to a level where we can have programming that's very intuitive, that will be true. But we're not there yet. The other thing that happens is if I don't really understand software engineering, then I don't really appreciate 
systems engineering or system of systems upgrades. I really don't think about the interoperability of systems and how they have to complement one another or the trade-offs that I make, for example, between bandwidth and computing at the edge, for example. So I think that that deep understanding of modern programming is important. The other reason I think it's important, and we heard this around the trust, there's a lot of concern that algorithms, AI algorithms, feel like a black box of magic. And people really want to understand how the recommendations that come out of that AI algorithm, how they're produced. And the belief is if I don't understand programming or have people on my team that really understand programming, I'm not really going to be able to suss out how that algorithm really works. That makes sense. And I wonder if that'll change with time, but that's a good point. So let's talk about data sensitivity because Mm -hmm. I think in 2020, one of the big trends or issues, if I'm forced to talk about them, is this idea of people are going to try to extend their digital transformations into their supply chain. And when they start doing that, I think they're going to run into this fact that, holy cow, they've got this data and they can only share some of this data. Maybe they can't share any of it based on contracts they sign with people like vendors who they purchase their equipment from. And they're also going to be like, oh, some of this data we don't want to give to person X, but we're fine giving it to person Y. I'm not hearing we're fine giving it to person Y much at all right now. Right now, I am hearing a circle the wagons and protect our data because data is the new oil. Yeah, I always argue. I'm like, insights are actually the oil. I don't disagree with you, but I don't think people have a deep enough understanding of what it takes to go from data to those insights. And, and, And because of that, the belief is my secret sauce, my competitive advantage operationally is somehow buried in my data that another person with operational chops could deduct where my competitive advantage might lie. There's some truth to that, actually. I believe there is, particularly in areas where your recipe is a big part of where your competitive advantage lies. So the, the more mechanical, higher volume, what I would call the plug and chug kinds of things, maybe not so much. But for some of those more nuanced operations, it, it might be buried in the data. But we have anecdotes, for example, of a company who hires a, a consultancy, brings them in and, and asks them to give them an algorithm that will do X, Y, Z, but then won't give them any data to test it or give them pretend data. And the technologist in the consultancy comes back to us and says, now, how is that ever going to perform well enough for them when I don't have the real data to actually tweak that algorithm? So it's a chicken and egg problem right now, partially, but the idea of sharing data with third parties is just so difficult. Now, are there legal constructs that might make this easier? Right now, I feel like we're at this point where we're like, oh, we have people sign NDAs before, you know, getting products. We have right. people, your suppliers, you test them for cybersecurity, you test them for compliance with ISO standards. So could we have data handling standards or? Those are beginning to emerge. It's really what happens if I work with a vendor and that vendor goes bankrupt? What happens to that data? So does that data get returned? So there are some uncertainties around the relationship because many of these relationships particularly in the AI space, are with smaller companies. These are companies that are developing very specialized AI algorithms that are highly tuned to a particular industry. 
And the question is, what happens if that company goes out of business? Uh, so that's one concern that we are hearing. The other concern that we're hearing around this whole idea of data is companies have been trying to stand up smart projects really fast for fear of being left behind. And in doing that, in fact, one senior exec told us, it's like the Wild West at my company. We're just trying to figure out what might work. And because of that, there aren't strict or formalized data governance policies. So when you say, shouldn't we have them? The idea is yes. But when you start negotiating contracts, keep in mind that purchasing in many of these companies has been negotiating contracts on a transactional basis. And what we're really talking about with data sharing is creating relationships between the manufacturer and its vendors. And those are different kinds of negotiations than we're typically seeing in procurement right now. Oh, that's really fascinating. So then it becomes, we've got to start thinking from a cooperative function, and that is, that is tough for people. And then I think also, when you start thinking that way, I think that's when you actually unlock a lot of the value. But then you have to also, when you're doing these contracts, think about how you're going to apportion value in these ecosystems. Yeah, that's why our suggestion has been, based upon these last two years of, of work, the combined study, is that you need to be, if you're the manufacturer, you need to be the manufacturer of choice. You have to be easy enough for me to work with because I'm going to have a lot of options of where I, who I want to work with, particularly in the heavy data science areas. The talent there is just not going to be great enough in numbers to support all of the projects out there. So when you say, what does it mean to be the vendor or manufacturer of choice? It's all about how easy am I to work with? Can I trust you? Are you willing to roll up your sleeves and actually show me things? And those are all relationship kinds of aspects. They're not transactional. We see that as, as sort of a, a real gap from an organizational cultural perspective. And it exists with manufacturers, certainly, but it also exists with some of their vendors. Vendors right now have a install it and leave it kind of mentality. If I'm a consultancy, I install this solution. And unless you buy a big service contract, I leave. And right. that's not doing the manufacturers very good. In fact, their recommend, manufacturing recommendations are, please don't just install it and leave. Please help us figure out how we're going to sustain it. So there's a belief that it really has to be more of a partnership going forward. Yeah. If you think about that, business has historically been transactionally based. Mm -hmm. And as we're moving into, we'll call it digital transformation, AI, IoT, whatever we want to call this, we are going to have to work more on building ecosystems. And that is much more relationship oriented. And we're beginning to hear that more and more from senior execs. They're beginning to recognize that the way in which they execute right now doesn't necessarily favor the relationship building necessary, and it doesn't favor the cross-functional nature of the teams that really are needed to support it. And I would say, going back to our earlier conversation about skill sets, mm -hmm. I would say some of the things that are on today's, such as communications and kind of that innovation mindset those are probably more important if you're going to try to build this relationship-oriented organization. I would agree with that. And I, I also suggest that how many projects have human resource people on the team? How many projects have procurement people on the team? So you hear an awful lot, Stacey, about buy-in. You hear execs saying, I have to get buy-in from my workforce. And what we're really arguing is it's not buy-in so much as it's engagement. 
So I really have to engage at a meaningful level with groups of people or roles that I typically haven't done in the past. And that's where we're seeing some of the problems come in. All right. Well, this is going into another level of conversation. I can't wait to talk to you in a year after possibly more (laughs) research to see how this is playing out. Irene, thank you so much for coming on the show this week. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, if you'd like more IoT news, sign up for my newsletter at stacyoniot.com. We'll see you next week. 